You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. I want to open with this question. What will matter the most to you on your deathbed? Just going real serious real quick. What will matter the most to you on your deathbed? What we have in Genesis chapter 48 and 49 is we have Jacob on his deathbed, the last of the patriarchs, before he's about to be gathered to his fathers, as they say. Um, And we get uh, a lot of really important information that he passes on to his grandkids and his sons uh, that we'll be looking at today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 48 and 49. And as I think about that, I think of my own grandparents, I think of my grandmother. I remember I just have two distinct memories of both of my grandmothers, both my dad's mom and my mom's mom, uh, the last time I saw them. And I knew it would be the last time I saw them. And that's a really, um, that's a really weird feeling when you know that you're having your final conversation with somebody, especially someone that's meant so much to you and your family. And I remember I uh, was in high school. My mom's mom was dying of cancer and we went into the hospice room and we knew this was it. We knew this was the, we were going to be making a trip uh, back home, this was going to be it. This was her final days. And I was just so struck by her joy, her love for Jesus and her longing to be with Jesus. And that in the midst of tremendous pain and all of these things, there was still an affection for us and just a desire to be home with the Lord. That has just always stuck with me. That will be something I'll always remember of my grandmother. I remember my, my dad's mom, the last time I saw her, she uh, had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and was really in a spot where uh, she'd gotten to a point where she really couldn't communicate at all. She mostly just sat in a chair and kind of shook. And it's just a, an awful disease because your, your brain's fine, you're in there, but you can't do anything, you can't communicate. And I remember it was 2004 and I had just gotten engaged and we went to see her and I introduced Bree to her for the first time. Just said, Grandma, I'm, I'm engaged, I'm going to be getting married. And she couldn't respond to us at all. She just sort of shook with joy in her chair there. Uh, Such a faithful woman, and we knew. We knew that was the last thing. But I just remember both of those final kind of, I guess, deathbed um, scenarios there and what an impression that made on me and the things that I want to be thinking about as I one day hopefully have an opportunity on my deathbed to bless my uh, kids and grandkids as these grandmothers did for me. And so uh, we're going to think about that a little bit today. Because in chapter 48, we have Jacob giving a patriarchal blessing to his grandchildren, the sons of Joseph. And then in chapter 49, he gathers his, his 12 sons together. And they are, so, so the t- title of today's message is Epic Patriarchal Blessings. Because we are reaching the end of a, a season through which God worked through these men that we call the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And now, uh, the sons of Jacob, um, they're now the 12 tribes of Israel. They have been in Egypt for 17 years. They went there. God providentially moved them out of the promised land into Egypt to save their lives from famine. And now the famine has passed and they've been there an additional 12 years. And we have Jacob who's going to give a final blessing and oracle and prophecy both to his grandsons and his children. And so we want to look at those today. We are ending our series on Genesis in just a couple of weeks. We're getting to the very end of this important first book of the Bible. We get all of the important categories about God and man and sin and what it means to walk with God and the plan of God, and it's only the beginning. Uh, The rest of the Bible fleshes these things out, but without the book of Genesis, we really cannot understand who this God is and what He's like and the plan that He has set in place, at least not as fully as we'd like. And so here we are. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I think is on Jacob's mind, or Israel, he's got two names now. God renamed him from Jacob to Israel, but we still see both names being used by him. Uh, there's, I think there's something that's in his mind here. We saw that at the end of chapter 47 when he asks Joseph, his son, to make sure that he's not buried in Egypt. He says, I want you to bury me in the promised land. Bury me in the cave of Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah, where Isaac and where all of these important, it's the one little spot, this little piece of prof- property, this, this nondescript cave is the only part of the promised land that they now have possession of. And in the midst of all of the prosperity, his son is vice regent of Egypt. Uh, Joseph could probably build the biggest, grandest pyramid of all for Jacob. And Jacob says, I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried where the promise is. I don't care 
about the prosperity and the memorial in Egypt. I want to be where God's promise is. And I want to be where my descendants, where my ancestors, I should say, where my ancestors are and where the promise will be one day. And so I think Jacob, as he thinks back on his tumultuous life and he's looking forward to the next generations, he's concerned, I think. I think he's concerned that his offspring might become too comfortable in Egypt. They might love the prosperity and begin to forget the promise. And so he wants to reiterate with them. And with his final words, God is moving him to speak important prophecies and oracles over them, some of them positive, some of them negative, but all of them important and really significant. And, uh, and so we want to look at those. Uh, for Jacob, now on his deathbed, facing eternity, Honor, memory, safety, security in Egypt is not worth surrendering the plan, mission, and promise of God. And he wants to make sure that his kids and his grandkids understand that. Even through the slavery that they're about to endure and ultimately the deliverance and prosperity that they will face or experience one day, don't forget the mission. Don't forget the promise. Don't forget who God is, what He's done for your ancestors, and what He intends to do in and through us as a family. And so here we are. Let's look at chapter 48. We'll break our time together in three parts. Jacob's adoptive blessing of Joseph's two sons. Then we'll look in chapter 49, Jacob's prophetic, man, I'm having a hard time with words, prophetic blessings of his 12 sons. And then right at the end, just this little tag, Jacob's faith-saturated, peace-filled death as he then passes off of the scene. So let's look at chapter 48. I'm just going to read the whole thing. You can follow along in your Bibles And then we'll make a few comments and applications on this first section. So here we go. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, appear to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give the land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who are born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. As for me... When I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to me, Father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the hand of Ephraim. It displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless... His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. 
Moreover, I have given you rather that your brothers, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I told took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Okay, so this is the picture is that Jacob knows his time has come and he calls for Joseph to come. Joseph is vice regent of Egypt, like he is the leader. He's the leader of 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 Egypt. But when his father calls, he drops everything and brings and brings his two sons with him as well. And they spend a little time with dad, with grandpa. And Ephraim and Manasseh are blessed. They're adopted, so to speak, in verse 5. Now your two sons who are born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So we have this unique thing where Israel is saying, Your two sons, Jacob, are now going to replace, in some sense, they're going to be part of the land blessing. They're going to be considered tribes of Israel. And so they're brought up a level, which means that Joseph is getting a firstborn blessing. He's getting a double portion because his sons now are going to move into the place of sons. They're not going to have to divide Joseph's inheritance. They're going to move up and actually, to some extent, replace Simeon and and Reuben. So we have this interesting thing where they're sort of bumped up a level in the rank of the family because of God's, uh, because of Israel's uh, appreciation for Joseph. And uh, and so we have in verse 3 and 4, as Jacob reflects on his life, he remembers that the Abrahamic promise came to him. And, And we see that. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring for you as an everlasting possession. So before he begins any of his interactions, he remembers the promises of God and the guarantees that God has given him. This is not about what Israel has accomplished in his life. It's about what God has promised. That's where Jacob wants to start. He wants to start his conversation with, this, with his family talking about the promises and wisdom and, um, and guarantees of God. In verse 5, we talked about this. The boys are adopted and they will become tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh will become tribes along with their uncles in the land of Canaan. And so this is a huge promotion. Uh, Joseph's sons will receive inheritance on the level of um, of their uncles. His eyes are dim. He puts his hand on the wrong boy. Joseph comes up and, you know, the typical way that you did in the ancient world was for the right hand to go on the firstborn because he's going to be the leader of the family. He's going to receive more of the inheritance because he has leadership responsibilities. He's the blessed one of the family and the younger. So Joseph brings them up in such a way that, that his father's hand will naturally land on Manasseh and his left hand will land on Ephraim as is appropriate. Jacob, even though he's blind, I think understands the custom and switches it. He switches it, which is just shows you the pattern that has been going on ever since. Uh, it's Abel, not Cain, that is right with God. It's is it's Ishmael or it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. And now it's Ephraim, not Manasseh. And we just see this principle that God doesn't do things according to man's plans. And again, we see that happening again is that Ephraim will become the more prominent tribe. It will become the more significant tribe while Manasseh will also be a significant tribe. But again, we see that God's blessing doesn't come as we expect and it doesn't come according to worldly rules comes according to his choice and his choosing. In verses 15 and 16, God, there's a calling on God to be with them as, ha, as, has been, as he has been to their fathers. Uh, verse 15, we see this beautiful line. He said, listen to this. Now just think about all that Jacob has been through, right? All that he's been through. Sibling, sibling rivalry. He's had to swindle his brother out of the out of the, the, the blessing, he has, uh, he's tricked his father. He had to go on the run. He was in this struggle with Laban. Laban tricks him again and again, makes him marry the daughter that he doesn't want. And then, you know, all of this stuff. Then he moves into the land. He's got a reunion with his brother. Like Jacob's life has been very tumultuous. And yet this is his verdict. As he looks back on his tumultuous life, his up and downs, this is what he says. Listen to what he says about his God. This is the legacy. This is the final word that he wants to give to his grandsons. And here's what he wants them to understand about his life. The God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God has been so good to me. Through the ups and downs, through the trials and tragedies, I now see, looking back on my life, that God has been shepherding me 
It's the first time we have God referred to as a shepherd. You know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That beautiful picture that God has been shepherding me. I haven't always seen his hand at work, but now looking back from my deathbed, my grandsons, I want you to know this. God has been my shepherd my whole life, and he'll be yours as well. And he goes on to talk about the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys, he says, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so he prays this blessing based on the promises of God. May the legacy of faith be carried on to and through my grandchildren. Ephraim will be the strongest of the tribes, one of the strongest tribes. The northern kingdom at times will just be called Ephraim in, when we see in the prophets hundreds of years later. So this prophecy about Ephraim becoming great and being a leader, uh, he will in some ways sort of eclipse some of the other tribes. And we'll see that a little bit later. First Chronicles 5, which is quite a ways after this, after the Israelites have come into the nation and we begin to see some of these prophecies come to fulfillment, First Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 says this, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, uh, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief Came, came among them, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So First Chronicles, centuries later, affirms what Jacob himself prophesied, that Joseph is actually the firstborn because Reuben disqualifies himself. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And Joseph steps into that firstborn, and that's demonstrated through the blessing given to his two sons. They get land and inheritance on the level of sons because they've been adopted. Interestingly, Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith, it talks about all of these important Old Testament characters, how they lived lives of faith. And often it'll give a little snippet of just a, a snapshot of their life when they demonstrated faith. Hebrews 11.21 talks about Jacob. Now think of Jacob and all the things that he did. And the author of Hebrews says this, this Jacob, by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So this is marked as an act of faith on Jacob's part. To bless these two sons in this way was part of God's plan and a demonstration of, God, of Jacob's trust in the promise of God. It's a demonstration of faith that's highlighted in the New Testament as this beautiful picture of faith. And so if the sweet interaction between a grandfather and these grandsons as he blesses them and gives them some perspective on life, on his life, and on their, what their life should be marked by. What matters most on Jacob's deathbed is that his grandkids know God and walk with him and be recipients of his promise. So here, I just have a few applications for us in this first chapter. You could think of many others. Here's four. Here's four for you to ponder. One is that it is your responsibility to give testimony of God's faithfulness to generations after you. You have a responsibility to pass on the faith to all people, but particularly those that come behind you. And to give testimony of God's faithfulness. Jacob has shown a bit of bitterness in and throughout his old man life, but now when it gets down to his deathbed and the final tone that he wants to strike is that God has been so good to me. He has shepherded me. He's delivered me from evil. And he will do the same with you. Second application, it's your responsibility to urge generations after you to personally know and walk with God. That's part of your responsibility. To call them. That's what he's doing, I think, with Ephraim and Manasseh. Yes, he's blessing and praying for them, but he's wanting to shape them to go walk with the God that your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather walk. Walk in their faithfulness. Learn from their mistakes. Notice God's faithfulness in their failures and their successes. Know your family history. Know the biblical history. I have a friend of mine. He's the, the pastor over at Christ Church, which is a a sister church of ours over on the west side, and uh, they're pastored by Garvin Golden. He's an, he's an older gentleman. He's got many years of ministry, um, and, uh, and I had lunch with him on Monday, and he was talking about one of the traditions that he has with his grandchildren. He buys a Bible about the time they turn 11 or 12, and then he reads that entire Bible for them, is the way he put it, praying for them. Every single verse, every single chapter, he prays through the whole Bible, reads through the whole Bible, and then on their 13th birthday, gives them this Bible and says, your grandfather read and prayed this for you. And he gives them this Bible. It's just such a precious picture of legacy 
and, and what matters most. And I just love that. This call to his grandchildren to go walk with God as your grandfathers have. Walk with them as I invest this in you. I was walking in faith because of you. Not just because I wanted to get to heaven one day and receive God's blessings, but because I want my kids and my grandkids and my great-great-grandkids to walk with Jesus. And so he has this really important thing that he does on their 13th birthday. This is a Bible that's been read by your grandfather for you. Will you read it for your grandpa? Will you read it ultimately for God? Number three, you bless a father most when you lovingly bless his children. Like Joseph actually doesn't get a blessing. It sort of bypasses him but goes to his kids. But if you're a parent, you know this, right? Nothing touches your heart more than when your kid is loved and cared for, right? And so you see that here, that Joseph actually doesn't get a land grant. He, there's no tribe of Joseph. No, it bypasses him and, and the blessing goes to his kids. And there's nothing sweeter than that, right? There's nothing sweeter than that than when someone, someone loves you well when they love your kids. So I would encourage all of us to love God by blessing his children, which is the church. Be committed to it. Love your brothers and sisters. You want to know how to honor God? One of the most important ways is to love his children, to care for them. To love your brothers and sisters in Christ is honoring to God. God's that way too, right? It's not just being generous with God and loving towards God and affectionate towards God, but being affectionate for his kids too. Loving his children. And then I think that also has some implications for kids' ministry. Is that we might have people that come into this church because their kids are so well-loved here. They might not. They might kind of have their arms folded and be, I'm not sure I'm in on this Jesus thing, but my kids are so well-cared for here. And there are so many people that have come to faith in Christ because their kids were well-loved by Christians, that it gained a hearing. It softens the heart. It kind of gets around the aisle. I'm not sure I believe in this Jesus thing, but I'm going to take my kids to church. I'm going to come myself because the people just love kids so much here, right? May that be the case personally as well. And so I just think that's a principle we see there. That's not the main point of the text, but it's just something that struck me in the passage of just going, man, a blessing to my kids is like a double blessing to me. And let's think of that with others as well. Bless each other's kids and we'll encourage one another as well. And, and so just a, just a principle, I think, that we see in the text. Number four, God continues to usurp the world's order of things by blessing the younger. God doesn't pick who the world would suggest we pick. We see that even with Jesus when he picks his 12 disciples. He doesn't pick he doesn't pick the seminary grads. He doesn't pick the elite. He doesn't pick he picks fishermen and tax collectors and people who would never make the cut in any other thing and he picks them. Kingdom is upside down. The kingdom is upside down. We see that from the very beginning that over and over again who we would expect the promise and the blessing to go to seems like it always goes the other direction that's purely by God's grace. And I think it should cause us to not presume or assume or look through worldly eyes at who we think is great in the kingdom, it might be the exact opposite. So we see this again and again, that God continually chooses the younger. Like I mentioned before, Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Ephraim, not Manasseh. God refuses to play by the world's rules of power and influence and priority. And so don't begrudge that when that happens in your life, when someone's put ahead of you or something looks backward or you're doing calculations in a worldly way and it doesn't seem like it works out like you think, God is just committed to doing the unexpected, right? He cannot be micromanaged. He cannot be um, presumed upon in that way in, in, that he would work in any one particular way in terms of how, who he might work with and who he might not work with, if that makes sense. So let's move to chapter 49. I want you to think about right there. Let's move on to chapter 49. Jacob's prophetic blessings of his 12 sons, okay? So grandkids are ushered out. Now he's going to gather his 12 sons around him. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. That's a big call. That's a big statement. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Okay, so I think Israel actually knows that this is going to be like a word from God. Like, I don't know how the Bible writers always know <laughs> when they're writing down Scripture. Like, man, I am just on fire. This is just so good. I don't, I don't know how they know that. I wasn't there when inspired Scripture was written down. But Israel seems to know that God has a message to communicate about the future to his sons here. And, uh, and it's just really, really remarkable what happens here. And if you jump down to verse 28, 
When he gets done with all the blessings, it says this, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them. As he blessed them, blessing them with the blessings suitable to him. So we're going to have some weird stuff said. We're going to have some things that we don't understand. We're going to have some things that are just mysteries. We're going to have some things that are really specific. And so we're just going to have to um, hold this a bit open-handedly. But there is a tailor-made prophecy for each one of these sons. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But these all, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that, uh, that it's remarkably consistent how much of these things come to pass. They come together exactly right. And even some of the things that, we're, that are kind of a mystery, we assume that God probably fulfilled those in ways that we just can't put our finger on. So one thing that we'll notice is that this is an assessment of their character. You're going to see a little bit that the fathers, uh, the, the conduct of these 12 sons sort of shapes the destiny of their descendants. So that's sort of an interesting thing. There's a bit of an assessment of their character. Uh, There's also a projection on how life is going to go for those tribes. It's also a blessing. It's also a prophecy. So this is a really substantive uh, set of scriptures here for the next handful of verses, 27 verses or so. Um, So to get our bearings here, I think you can see the slide up there. Okay, on the left here, I don't know how well you can see that. That's the birth order of the sons. Okay, so that's the order they were born in. Um, and then you have in this second column the blessing order of our passage here. Okay, So largely, it's like all the sons of Leah, even though they're not necessarily all born first, he's going to handle all the sons of Leah first, then Bilhah, then Zilpah, then back to Bilhah, then Rachel, <laughs> Rachel's sons. So this is just, I don't know if this was just the line they got in. I don't, I don't know necessarily the significance of, of the order here, but it is different than the birth order. And I actually want to do something a little weird and actually go through this passage a little out of order. So I want to look at the order of, we kind of have three things going on here. We have three negative, extended, specific prophecies for Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. They're just really, they're longer and they're more specific, but they're negative. Then I want to look at the seven really vague, short prophecies for these guys in the middle And then I actually want to look at Joseph and Judah who get long, specific, really glorious prophecies about them. I want to save them for last. I'm going to save the best for last here. Okay, so let's do let's do the bad first. So here we go. Uh, Let's look at these three negative extended prophecies for Reuben, Simeon and Levi. Look at verse three. Reuben. Okay, so they're all there. They're gathered before their father. He's made a big deal. This is going to be a uh, a destiny-shaping word from their father and ultimately from God. And so here we go. Let's start with the firstborn, Reuben. This is what you would expect. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch." So, the verse starts so glorious, like, Reuben, you had so much potential, and you stood in such a prominent place, yet you fell so far. You fell so far. Your character did not match the position that you were put in, and so you will be removed. You will not have preeminence. You will not be considered the firstborn, because ultimately what he did is he went, I think it's Bilhah, went and slept with Bilhah, his father's wife, back in, what was that, 34, 37 I should have wrote that down, but it's somewhere there. It's just this one little verse where Reuben usurps his father's um, power, steals one of his wives, sleeps with her, and that understandably fractures the family and removes Reuben from being a person that can be trusted with leadership in the family. So the firstborn privilege is removed. Reuben, as we find out if we watch, read the rest of the Bible, Reuben really never is a very strong tribe among the 12 tribes. He's never that strong of a tribe. So what should be the strong tribe because of a moral failing here? Now, the good news is is that he's still included. He's still included by God's grace. He's not disqualified from the family, but his place of leadership he's disqualified from. And so we see that play out in Reuben's life, that he's never the strongest tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh sort of step into that firstborn role and become the more prominent tribes. So this prophecy comes true. Reuben should be a strong tribe, never really is the strong tribe that he could have been um, were it not for sin. 
Verses 5 through 7, we have Simeon and Levi, and their blessing slash judgment is sort of lumped together because of an event. Look at this, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now, they're all brothers, Dad, (laughs) right? But there's something about these two, you can kind of put them in the same bucket. They're like two peas in a pod. These two are almost the same person. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So if you remember this, the, the massacre back in Genesis chapter 34, they used the covenant symbol of God, circumcision, to weaken an enemy, to try to avenge their sister, and then they wipe out a whole bunch of Canaanites. Just wipe them out. Just vengeance and anger and rage and bloodshed. And it says here that they hamstrung oxen. So it's like they just wrecked stuff. It's not like they stole the oxen and used them for themselves. They went ahead and just like cut their legs off, hamstrung them so that no one can use them. It's just destructive. And that's part of who their character is. And so now there's going to be a curse on them to the extent that they are not to receive any land. And in fact, that's what happens when they inherit the land 400 years later. Simeon doesn't get any land. He only gets a few cities within the land of Judah. And Levi, the priesthood actually comes through Levi, so God is gracious to continue to use the Levites. But they only get some cities throughout Israel as well. So they don't get a land inheritance later on as well. I think at least in part because of this. They will not, I will divide them in Jacob, I will scatter them in Israel. So we see this prophecy of Jacob come to fruition 400 years later. Okay, let's look at the seven vague short prophecies in verses 13 through 21 and 27. Okay, so we're going to skip over Judah for now. I want to come back to him because his is so good. I want to save it for the end. So, and, and we'll skip over Joseph as well. I'd come back to him at the end as well because I want to leave you with, uh, with those two glorious prophecies. So now what's interesting is that these seven prophecies are so short. They're like one-liners. Like it's just like he's clipping through the rest of the sons. He's got words to say to these first three, the first three that are firstborn, and it's all negative. It's pretty specific. It's negative. You can track it. These next seven are sort of enigmatic. They're sort of like, man, what do we make of this? It's sometimes a play on their name. It's sometimes associating them with an animal. And we don't have a lot of specifics in terms of how to tie some of these prophecies to things. So we're going to go through these pretty quickly because I think ultimately the point of the passage and the biggest, best good news comes in the prophecies of Joseph and Judah. So first we have Zebulun. And here's what verse 13 says. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. I think I have a map, Steve, if you want to put a map up because maybe some of this will be helpful. So you see Simeon doesn't get a land. He just gets some cities. Levi... He gets some cities throughout, but that's who inherits the land. You see, Manasseh ends up being significant. Ephraim becomes really significant. Um, There's no tribe of Joseph. Um, So you can just kind of track with this because this is part of what's in the prophecy. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. So this shows that he's going to have some close proximity to the sea. um, And uh, and that's going to bring a lot of prosperity as sea-ness kind of connects to that. So... Um, yeah, you can kind of see that Zebulun's pretty close to the coast there and a lot of sea-worthy stuff happens in there. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. So Issachar ends up with a good location that's pretty fruitful, but he prefers ease and luxury and uh, ends up selling himself into some sort of enslavement. Like he just is, is a bit of a pushover. Dan, verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper on the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. So Dan will be relatively small but significant because of his location. Um, Samson is a Danite. Samson is a descendant of the Dan tribe. And so when we talk about uh, Dan shall be a judge of the peoples, perhaps that's a reference to Samson down the line. And they're going to be a bit of a handful for their enemies, like this serpent that's just sort of like, man, tough to deal with, tough to get around. Dan is formidable. Verse 21, it's almost like Jacob right here gets a little bit exhausted. 
And it's all been largely negative. And so he says, I wait for the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> it's just like he's got to take a breath. Like, I just got to wait a brief pause for a weary dying Jacob to just acknowledge God and pray for his help. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It shows both faith and agony in this process of blessing these sons. Verse 22, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So there'll be continually political conflict for Gad. For this border and, uh, border and trade route goes right through him. So he's going to be in a contested place. I think that matches up with Gad. Yeah, right there, Gad. He's got a lot going on right there. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall enjoy rich delicacies. He's going to be up near the prosperous areas of Lebanon, Tyre, Sidon, lots of rich, desirable, expensive prosperity. Asher will have, uh, have that at his disposal. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. This one's kind of a mystery. This idea of like, I think it can also be translated like beautiful words come from him. Uh, it's kind of a mystery, but Jesus does a lot of his public teaching there. So maybe the beautiful produce is actually the teachings of Jesus, potentially, in the region of Naphtali. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoils. So this is a bit odd because Benjamin's one of the favored sons, right? He's one of, he, you know, next to Joseph, he's the favored son of Rachel, and yet he gets a bit of a negative uh, a negative word from his father. He's a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. This could be referring to Judges 19 and 20 where this tribe commits a horrible atrocity and almost gets wiped out because of their terrible violent sin that actually a war breaks out, a civil war in Israel breaks out and Benjamin is nearly wiped out because Benjamin has just become so corrupted and sinful. So that could be what uh, is in mind there. But here together we see these seven you see their diversity, you see their mutual gifting, you see their personalities, and while it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on in each individual oracle, we do see that there's a, a, a variety here, that the nation of Israel is going to be a varied place. There's going to be maritime power, there's going to be husbandry, taking care of animals, there's going to be political conflict, uh, there's going to be the power to conquer there's going to be plenty, there's going to be eloquence, there's going to be a warlike character, and so we just see that these tribes have personalities. And the nation of Israel is both very gifted in the variety of things that it's going to have and possess and do, and yet there's going to be a lot of tensions and troubles along the way. Okay, we got through that. Let's look at the two positive extended prophecies for Joseph and Judah, okay? Go back to verse 22. Let's look at Joseph first. Again, we're going way out of order. Let's look at Joseph first. Joseph... 22, I'm sorry, yeah, verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessing of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who set apart from his brothers. So verse 22, we have recounting what Joseph has become, a fruitful bough. This is the, a picture of a, of a, of a tree or a vine that has so much fruit on it, it's so heavy with such glorious fruit. Joseph has been so prosperous. Like a fruitful bough by a spring, its branches run over the wall, which means that he's a blessing to his neighbors, right? He's even a blessing to other nations. He's not just a blessing to his family and to the nation of Egypt, but he's a blessing to all nations. And then we have in verse 23 a recounting of what Joseph has overcome in his life. The archers bitterly attacked him, which would be his brothers, right? <laughs> They shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved, meaning that he did not respond with violence to them. They shot arrows at him. He did not pick up his bow to shoot arrows in return. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. So who gets the credit for Joseph's deliverance but God? And then we just have all of these names stacked up for God. The mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings from heaven above. So Joseph has been marked by having a relationship with God. It is God who's been delivering him. 
There's, it's not that Joseph in and of himself is impressive. It's the fact that his God is impressive. And despite adversity and difficulty, he remains fruitful. And he doesn't respond with, with, he doesn't respond with vengeance. He responds with grace and forgiveness because of whose God he is. Verse 24, God gets all the credit. Verse 25, of pronouncing in faith that God will do more. God will do more in Jacob, through Jacob, or I'm sorry, in Joseph, through Joseph. There's more blessing that God intends to do through Joseph and through men like Joseph. And then verse 26, praying the cumulative wave of God's faithfulness that began in Abraham and built steam in Isaac and built even more steam in Jacob that now is building even more power and um, and strength, this wave of blessing is coming to Joseph, and may it only continue to strengthen in a person like Joseph. So may this faithfulness increase on Joseph and beyond. This is firstborn-type language. This is, man, he is the son. He is the example to the family. He is the leader. He is the kind of person that we want characterizing the people of God. Joseph is the blessed firstborn to the point that he and his sons are elevated to the vacated positions of his failed brothers. This looks a little bit like the Psalm 1 man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers. I forget how it goes, but he's like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. You get Psalm 1, like this beautiful picture of someone who walks with God, someone who flourishes in God, who's overflowing with productivity and spiritual fruit and forgiveness. He resembles Psalm 1. And I think you also here see a picture of Jesus, do you not? You see a picture of Jesus. Jesus is a fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. Archers bitterly attacked Jesus. His brothers attacked Him, yet He did not attack in return. His arms were made agile by the hands of the Mighty One. He is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It talks about Jesus being the cornerstone. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And so we see in Joseph character qualities that are going to be magnified in Jesus. There's going to be a Joseph-like character that comes down the line that will be a blessing, a blessing of his father, the blessing of all nations. And so you see the one who is set apart from all other humans, just as Joseph was set apart from his brothers, so Christ will come looking like Joseph in many ways, fruitful like Joseph, forgiving like Joseph, a a, a, a godly ruler like Joseph who will be set apart and a blessing will come through him. So you p- see this picture of Jesus is going to look somewhat Joseph-like. And then we get to Judah. Look at verse 8, verses 8 through 12. Look at Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Pay attention to that. A lion from Judah. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestments in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So you get this oracle about Judah, that Judah is going to be a royal line, a scepter, a ruler, a king. This is a surprise. Reuben is disqualified for sexual sin. Simeon and Levi are disqualified for violent sin. Judah, in some ways, is guilty of both. And yet, God in his grace sets his affections on a broken Screw up like Judah turns his heart. We saw that a few chapters back, that God had changed Judah's heart. He was just as guilty as the rest of them. He had no claim in and of himself that he should get this kind of promise, that he should get this kind of preeminence. Yet only by God's grace, Judah has been chosen, transformed in his heart, and now is given the privilege of being the royal line, not just of Israel, but it says there, of peoples. Did you see that? You shall rule peoples. Your brothers shall praise you. Okay, you'll, be the king of, you'll have a king of Egypt. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's son shall bow down to you. But it'll be peoples. Uh, that's verse 10. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, all the nations. There will be a king of all nations that comes from Judah. 
Judah will receive praise. Judah will have victory. Judah shall rule. Judah shall be like a royal lion. An eternal king and kingdom will come from Judah. And so you have this oracle given to the 12 sons that you're my people, you're God's people, you're about to go into the land in a few hundred years after some slavery. You need to keep your eye on the promise and you need to look for, look down the line of Judah. Look down the line of Judah for the king that you're looking for. Verse 10, you have this phrase that's translated until tribute comes to him, which I think is a bad translation. It's literally until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Which Shiloh is a place in the Bible, but this seems to be referring to a person. Because Shiloh itself means peace or the rest bringer. Shiloh means the peace bringer or the rest bringer comes. So listen to it this way. Um, Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the peace bringer comes. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. This is speaking way beyond Judah. Judah won't do this. But there will be a descendant of Judah. And he, there will be a peace bringer. There will be a rest bringer who looks like a person, a singular person that's going to come through this line. And all the nations will bow down to him. It's a prophecy about Jesus. That's a prophecy about Christ. Shiloh is not a place, it's a person. This peace and rest bringer that comes through the line of Judah shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And then I think speaking of this peace bringer, verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So he's going to be marked but not by the war horse, but he's going to be marked by the burden-bearing donkey. What is today? Today is Palm Sunday where Jesus entered into the city. On what? A donkey. The foal of a donkey. So this is going to be a king that's, that is connected to a donkey and a donkey's colt. He has washed his garments in wine and investments in the blood of grapes. The the vine and wine is often talked about as prosperity, like royal prosperity. Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2 is turning water to wine. And here we have a prophecy about wine being so plentiful you wash your garments in it. Right? Have this picture of one who will do who will bring the prosperity of wine and vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk, which means that he's pure. He's morally pure. He's the perfect king. So this Shiloh, this one who the nations bow down to, this one who comes on a donkey, will bring royal prosperity. He will be covered in blood. Because it talks about his garments being dipped in wine, in the blood of grapes. So this will be one, this will be a king who is covered in blood whose garments are covered in blood. They will be soaked in wine, which is often a metaphor for blood. So you'll have a bloody, this will be a bloody ruler of all the peoples. Verse 12, he will be perfect and pure. What might Jacob be talking about here? As he speaks to Judah, he looks past Judah to what? The fulfillment of the promises of Jesus Christ. The rest of the Old Testament shows that King David will come from this line and King David will receive a promise that says a king will come from you. The line of Judah the line of David, a king that will have an eternal kingdom. This is the royal line in Israel's history. You're going to watch the whole Old Testament traces this. Watch, watch this tribe. Watch these people. Look for this character qualities. Look for this kind of person. This is the royal line. This Shiloh is the one who is spoken of. Several hundred years later, yet 700 years before Christ comes, Isaiah 9 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Shiloh. Shiloh will come, Isaiah is saying. I know it's been hundreds of years since we've heard the Judah prophecy, but it's still in play. 700 more years and a Prince of Peace will come. The one who is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And again, today, like we read earlier, Jesus rides in on the foal of a donkey to the cries of Hosanna as we read earlier. And look at Revelation chapter 5. So we get to the end of the book. How does this end? Like we're in Genesis, we're at the end of Genesis, we see this prophecy to watch Judah, watch for a peace bringer from Judah, watch for a king that all the nations will bow down to, one whose garments are covered in blood. Look, look for that one. Now we fast forward clear to the end of the end book, Revelation 5, and look at this. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's able to bring history to its completion? 
is what's being symbolized there. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look upon it. No one can bring all of this horror, all of this sin, all of this evil. Who can bring the Lord's plan to fruition? Who can bring justice and righteousness and glory and forgiveness and the new heavens and the new earth? In verse 5, the one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy back in Genesis chapter 49. And as such, he is qualified to bring history to its good and right end. He's the king. He's the king that we've been waiting for that Judah on his deathbed speaks of. I'm sorry, that Jacob speaks of. All those J names are tough to keep. Revelation 7. Let me show you another revelation. 7, 9 through 17. I wrote the wrong one in here, so I'm going to read off the screen. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to them, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, for they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb therefore they are before the throne of god and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more the sun shall not strike them or any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes do you see what's packed in this little prophecy let me just read it again Listen to this Judah promise now. Listen to this prophecy. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched down as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter, the rule, the rule shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. It's a prophecy about Jesus. Prophecy about Jesus. Packed up in this little oracle, these few sentences given to Judah. Israel's prophetic blessings contain the entire redemptive story in seed form. Israel is saying, My sons, do not get allured by Egypt or anything in this world. Put your hope in the promise that we have received, but have not yet fully seen. The promise of a Savior who will be from Judah and who will look like Joseph. He will rule with kindness and peace. He will serve and spill his own blood, and he will make all things right. This oracle speaks forward to that, and they're going to need it for the next 1,500 years or so. They're going to need to hold on to that promise the specificity of that promise. Which then brings us to our last section here. Jacob's faith-saturated, peace-filled death. Look at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Don't need a pyramid. Don't care about Egypt. I want to be where the promise is. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. What a way to end. Speaking of Christ, affirming your sons and their descendants, stay faithful to God. Trust in his promises. Don't look away. Keep staring at the tribe of Judah. Keep looking. Keep waiting. Keep 
pressing forward in the promises of God. A clear message, Egypt is not our home. Don't bury me here. It is not our destiny. Put me, do not put me in a pyramid. Put me in a forgettable cave with God's promise and a legacy of faith. I do not care about worldly renown. I want to be where God's promises are. The Israelites will struggle with worldly calculations and a desire for Egypt for centuries. <laughs> Egypt will get into their hearts. Joseph, or Jacob's fears were well-founded. The Israelites will get a little bit of Egypt in them. And he's trying so hard to get them to not buy into that. A few applications and we're done. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Both sin and integrity have consequences, sometimes for generations. There's no way around that. We see that in Rubian, Sibian, Levi. They made decisions that affected their offspring for centuries. But, my friends, they're not cut off. They were continued to be part of the people of God. Yes, there were consequences, and yes, they weren't kicked out of the family. Consequences, yes, but not abandoned or cut off, still included in the family of God. And that may be true for us. That may be true for us. We may be dealing with the consequences of people, our parents, our grandparents. We may be dealing with their consequences, but that doesn't disqualify us from, it, from being included. Maybe we've made some real mistakes, and there will be consequences for those things. We need to be aware that there are things that affect generations. There are family things that can be passed down. Both integrity and sin have consequences. So choose integrity. Choose godliness. Choose righteousness. And repent of sin. Number two. It's not how you start or how much you struggle in the middle, but how you finish. Right? Don't we see that with Jacob? He doesn't start great, and he is all over the place in the middle, but thanks to a faithful God, he finishes. He finishes giving testimony to God. He finishes so well, doesn't he, on his deathbed? He finishes so well. So be encouraged, my friends. It's not how you start. It's not how much struggle there is in the middle to walk with God. It's how you finish. It's how you finish. Do you get to the finish line trusting in Him, proclaiming His goodness? So don't give up. Jacob ends well, even though he made a mess of most of his life. He finishes well, and he proclaims the gospel to his kids and his grandkids. That's a good way to go. Jacob, Israel, his life is a success because he finishes well. Number three. The things that matter most on your deathbed are the things that need to define your life right now. And that's really what he's calling them to. The things that mean the most on my deathbed now are actually the, the things I want my kids to learn now. <laughs> it seemed like it took Jacob this whole time to get to the point where he understood God and understood what God was doing in his life. It seems like it took all 147 years of his life. If I could download that into my kids at age 20 or 10 or 6, like, <laughs> that would be wonderful. If it wouldn't take you 147 years to get it, I'd like to go ahead and just give you a head start here and make that deposit in you now. And I would encourage those of you that are younger, look to those that are older who are walking by faith and learn from them. You might be able to avoid some scars, some regrets. You might be able to avoid some chaos and some trouble if you look to the godliness of others. Listen to the stories of those who are older. Let them bless you. Let them speak of God's faithfulness. Let them show you how God has shepherded them. So prosperity, memorial, they don't mean anything on your deathbed. What matters to him is the obscure cave of promise. He says, give me my children and grandchildren walking in the kingdom of God. I don't care about anything else. They were going to be in Egypt, but don't let Egypt get into you. That's the message. And the original audience would fight Moses tooth and nail on that. Number four, look in the line of Judah for a king that looks like Joseph. Underlying all these oracles is a rock-solid confidence that God will keep His promises to those who trust in Him. So I would encourage you to join us this Friday as we look at the King who's drenched in blood, as we look at Luke 23, and we think about Good Friday here, 7 o'clock. We're going to look at Luke 23 and what this King that was promised to, into the line of Judah, what He's like and what, it, what He accomplished on the cross. And then join us next Sunday as we marvel at 10.30 at the glorious resurrection of this King and as he gains victory and that eternal scepter that he has, that he possesses, begins at the resurrection as he begins to say, well, he says at his ascension, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. We get this glorious reality. And even now, I would encourage you, don't delay. Call on the God of Jacob and his sons and his grandsons. Put your hope and identity in God through repentance of sin and faith 
in the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. Bow to this king, this king that comes from Judah that can forgive you of your sins, that can restore you in a right relationship with God, and who is the ruler of all things, who can bring all things to fruition, who can wipe every tear from every eye. Put your trust in him. Let's bow. God, I pray for my friends right here. Thank you for this passage. There's a lot to unpack here. We essentially have the whole Bible in just a couple verses. And so, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would open our eyes in faith to the things that we've seen in your word. Um, and God, I pray that we would marvel at Jesus, that he is everything we're looking for. God, help us to turn from our sin, turn from ourselves, and put our trust in Jesus, that he really did come as promised, that he lived a perfect life on our behalf, that he died a bloody death, taking your wrath for our sin upon himself, and he rose again. And that if we will bow the knee to him, if we will trust in him, then we will be included in these promises, we'll be included in these blessings, and we will be guaranteed um, resurrection life, we will be guaranteed new heavens and new earth, we'll be guaranteed that all of the things that have happened in our lives will be turned for good, just as Jacob said, you have shepherded us our whole life. May that be true of us. Help us to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.